take it, ladies and gentlemen, that it is now time uh, to begin, right? Yes. Yes. There's a gentleman there that's not a Jimmy, and we're all set. Um, the the uh, topic is three bisexual poets. The first one is Virgil. I have, uh, can you see this? I have translated his eclogues. The second one is Hafiz. I have translated poems from his divan, which means collection. A divan nowadays is something you sit on, but uh, it used to be the assembly of people that sat on the divan. And lastly, this is a, a rather audaciously entitled book. I call it Shakespeare. And this is where I interview him. And uh, uh, for every poem uh, he writes, I write one. So the book is in not 154, but 308 poems. Now, all three of these books are interview books. I don't know of anybody else that does this kind of thing, but I am a, a space and time traveler, and I do like to interview the people that I study. Now, Virgil, although a text in, uh, in, in, in school for schoolboys for centuries, uh, does, uh, uh, seems to have been uh, treated uh, in a rather spotty fashion. Some of his uh, poems are well known. Uh, and others uh, are, uh, for some reason, skipped over. Eclogue the second. First of all, let me tell you what's an eclogue. It's a short poem. And uh, these poems are not terribly short, but moderately so. Each one of them is a one-act play. And usually there are two speakers. And there are sometimes three. And exceptionally, there can be just one. And that is the kind I have chosen. I'm going to read you the uh, uh, second eclogue as I have translated it. Now, uh, uh, English translations generally don't do uh, justice to Virgil. You know, he writes in an extraordinarily beautiful but ambitious kind of line. All of every single line he writes goes like this. One and a two and a three and a four and a five and a six and. Now, what is that? That's, that's a 17 syllable line. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 16, Got it? Six, six, uh, 17 lines. Uh, but in Eng English, they usually turn it into iambic pentameter. Uh, and nowadays they're turning into various hybrids of free verse that sort of wanders in and out of pentameter. I don't like any of that because none of it sounds like Virgil. But I go back to the original. And how do I do that? I wanted to read uh, something that sounded as Virgil would actually have 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 uh, spoken it, and I'm, uh, my Latin isn't really good enough to get all of that uh, from, from his words. So I went to Christian Nathaniel Uziander, who in 1853, uh, being the perfect poet and, and scrupulous translator he was, translated everything in a 17-syllable line. And I translate from him, because I can speak German. So shall we begin then? Second eclogue, Corridon is the speaker, and he is in love with Alexis. And Alexis is a man, as the name has been male for hundreds of years. It's only lately that girls have started getting this name. And it was explained to me that there was a, a lady celebrity on TV named Alexis, and she helped to make it popular for girls. Anyway, that's the situation. Corridon Shepherd was 
burning for handsome Alexis, whom Master Iolus favored, the outlook had cored and badly disheartened. He to the beech grove resorted continually, where the treetops offered their shade, and where Coridan, constant, though never rewarded, uttered to forest and hill an unvalued and wearisome chanting. Dreadful Alexis, can music no meaning convey to your spirit? Won't you a mercy exert? You will drive me at length to my deathbed. Cattle that look find a nourishing coolness emerge from the woodland. Hedges, a thorn-weaponed shelter, accord to the verdant-backed lizard. Cumin and garlic, strong-flavored, well-crushed, to refreshments contribute, which to the workers will Festulus give when they're weary of mowing. I, though, who follow your steps in the ever more bright, glaring sunlight, songs blend unheard with the crickets in thicket, unchanging, abrasive. Isn't this fun to listen to? You know, it's uh, it's highly musical. He talks about it. He, he says he's singing. Oh, I want to tell you one more thing that is remarkable about these eclogues. It's not indicated by the title because it just means short poems. And people always say, well, what are these eclogues? And everybody gives the same answer. Shepherd poems. That's sort of half right. They're shepherd farmers. What nobody tells you is what these shepherd farmers do in their poems. This is all about what they do on their mostly on their time off. And what they do is they talk about singing. They sing. They compose poetry. They recite poetry. And they run competitions to see who can sing and recite the best poem. Uh, best if it can be done to, to a flute or a lyre accompaniment. Is very, very highly cultured rural folk. I just wanted to say that because they impress me on every page. And nobody says that about the eclogues. If, if you knew that these were totally music-obsessed people, you might be more eager to read the poem. Were it not better to seek Amaryllis, the proud, the disdainful, sulking in scorn, or Menalcas to woo, though I have to admit it, dark, the tanned hue of his face can't be likened to yours, blinding whiteness. Though you're so charming, let not your attractive complexion betray you. Privets, though white, and the hyacinth, darksomely colored, both vanish. Why don't you ask who I am? Is the topic devoid of all interest? Great is my dairy farm wealth, an abundance of milk and of porridge, myriad lambs on Sicilian hills, and in summer, in winter, Never a shortage of nutritive milk, re-infusing a vigor. As I was taught by the Dercian Amphion, high on the mountain Aracinth, calling together the ghosts, even now am I singing, nor am I ugly. When down at the seashore I looked in the water, handsome the figure I glimpsed while the winds were caressing the wavelets. Even to be likened to Daphnis I'd fear not, but trust to your judgment. Oh, how I'd like it if you, tranquil days on the mead not despising, lived in a plain simple cottage with me. Of the deer we'd be hunters, or mid the green of the mallows, be driving the goats with their young ones. If a duet we attempted, we'd emulate Pan in the forest. 
He, you'll recall, was the first who with wax joined the reeds to be tuneful. Sheep he would ever protect and was equally kind to their shepherds. Don't be annoyed if your lips should be chafed while you're playing the reed pipe. Think of the diligence proved by Amyntas, great flute skill attaining. I have a syrinx with reeds of the hemlock in pitches that differ, seven in all that Demetus had given me once for a present. Later, when dying, he said, you have mastered it. Now you will own it. That's how Demetus had felt. But Amyntas begrudged it with envy. Look, I've two fawns that I caught in a perilous, narrow ravine shaft, fur spotted whitely all over, two lambkins that suckle twice daily. All will be yours if you wish, though, although Thestylus wanted to have them. Well, she may get them at last if you steadily spurn my affections. Come over here, you so good-looking boy, for the nymphs are presenting lilies the best. In a basket abundant comes white-robed the naiad, tops of the poppy she plucked, with the violets pale right beside them. Blooms of the dill with their dulcet aroma are daffodil comrades. Fennel, beloved of bees ever fragrant, and other sweet herbage, Iris and Cassia, too, golden-flowered, the girl is in wreathing. Dusky-toned quinces with downy soft plum, I myself want to gather. Also the chestnuts, the dear Amaryllis, adorable maiden, loved, and the plum smooth as wax. We must honor the fruits. Let us love them. Laurel, you too I've picked out, and you, Myrtle, so friendly together made for each other, you raise a most lovable, drunk-making fragrance. Corridon, awkward, you boor, you will never with gifts tempt Alexis. Even if presents availed, you would have to compete with Iolas. I was me, and alas, I'm defeated. I better admit it. Blooms to the south wind I gave, to the wild boars my shimmering water. Whom are you running from, fool? In the grove have the gods made their dwelling. Paris, Dardanian, too. Then let Pallas, the builder of cities, live in a tower she made. May the grove be my choice and my freedom. She-lion harries the wolf, and the latter is after the she-goat. Filled with new vigor, the goat would devour the rich flowering broom plant. Corridon follows Alexis. All creatures are fervid and harried. Look at the hard-driven oxen, the wearisome plough bearing homeward. See how the sun, when descending, the length of a shadow will double. Me, love alone, set a glow. Hotly kindled, who now may control it? Corridon, Corridon, ah, you've been grabbed by a violent madness. Only half pruned on the elm are the vines in their arduous climbing. Why not start weaving a basket of pliable wands of the willow? 
twigs of a hardier wood you can add for a practical crafting. What's a rejection? Remember, there's many another Alexis. Reply to second eclogue, a comparison. I told you it's an interview, so now it's time for me to, to speak for a minute. And I begin with a, uh, with a quote from another book about nature. It's, it's by Lucretius. It's called On the Nature of Things, or some people translate it, The Way Things Are. It's a very remarkable and striking paragraph. Even in the hour of possession, the passion of the lovers fluctuates and wanders in uncertainty. They cannot decide what to enjoy first with their eyes and hands. They tightly squeeze the object of their desire and cause bodily pain, often driving their teeth into one another's lips and crushing mouth against mouth. Well, there's a description of love in the natural world. Uh, I had to think about that for a minute. The first part of my reply is called Virgil and Shakespeare. Virgil had made it quite clear how the swelling of empire had threatened even the right of a shepherd to stay in his bountiful homeland. Passion, however, no rival can have as the major unsettler. Wild is the metaphor used to illuminate nature's great food chain. She-lion harries the wolf, and the latter is after the she-goat. Filled with new vigor, the goat would devour the rich flowering broom plant. Corridan follows Alexis. All creatures are driven and harried. Up flash the visions of what had been noted by stormy Lucretius. Venus and Mars, who are passion and war, are the parents of Cupid. Virgil, you're also prophetic of Britain's great bard, William Shakespeare. Brave swan of Mantua, king kin to the swan of our Stratford-on-Avon. Him had I interviewed earlier. Here, as to you I am turning, let me observe that you both have depicted what never will alter. Multiple gardens and battlefronts, prodigal natures provided. Crucial as part of the humanist training Erasmus had patterned during the youth time of William, the famous Virgilian eclogues, being composed by the poet most highly esteemed of the Romans, widely were studied and relished when read in the splendor of Latin. Let us review what we've learned about Corridan's love for Alexis, then we'll allude to events that occur in the sonnets of Shakespeare. Virgil. Thestilus, Naed, or Nymph, in a bounteous gift-bearing maiden, we are obliged, I would guess, to suppose we are viewing a servant, maybe a stewardess, helping the master to offer the tributes, richly portrayed with descriptions of pleasure enticing the hearer. Flowers and fruits and the herbs and the condiments tempting the palate, offerings Corridan hopes that, along with the fawns and the lambkins, favor will bring from Alexis, to whom he feels ardent or flaming. Corridan, deeming himself the near equal of ravishing Daphnis, hopes that he won't be reduced to the wooing of sun-tanned Menalcas, judgment criteria widely employed at this time by the ancients, nor that he'd have to go courting the lovely but proud Amaryllis. That would be rather too humbling. She tends to be sulky or scornful. You notice how it's a bisexual poem? He could go either way. And then part three, and the last one, is uh, Shakespeare. William 154 sonnets began with a warning. 
Seeing the boyfriend as beautiful rose in the world's fresh adornment, 39 poems of chiding, he writes, if you don't pay it forward, bearing a son, maybe 10 of them, boys to inherit your beauty, you'll mother nature offend and will perish, fine youth time unrescued. We'll see that, I guess I can't show you that here, but Shakespeare makes that point 39 times. He, he badgers his boyfriend about that. I have a friend who's about my age and doesn't have any children. He found it really astonishing. He said, why does he give me all this? Enters a woman, song 40. There's no woman in this sonnet sequence until, until sonnet number 40. Both Will and his boyfriend adore her. Problems arise, but surprise, only three sonnets more will be needed. Spirits to calm, and behold, Will returns to the modern Alexis, who we may note will be nameless throughout the succeeding adventures. Thirty-five sonnets now offer more love hymns addressed to the boyfriend. Four lyrics afterwards seem to refer to a poet contender who is attracted like William, alas, to the very same boyfriend. Troublesome, right? So you'd think. But pursuit of the boyfriend continues. When might a woman appear? We must wait till song 127. Thence to the end of the series, we hear of that troubling beloved. So you see, there's never been a more bisexual collection. And in general, the boy gets more attention than the girl. Shall I? Shall we all take a deep breath and then do our second poet? Mm. really enjoyable. What you have to do, though, is uh, take deep breaths. 17-syllable lines mean you need energy. If you've got a, a, a voice that is in any way failing you, don't attempt it. So uh, here's our second poet that I look at. This is um, Hafiz, Muhammad Shimzedin Hafiz, 1315 to 1390. He is a Sufi poet. And my book about him is, or where I where interview him, is called Poems of Wine and Tavern Romance. Now, that's interesting because uh, both of these are problems in traditional Islam. First, the wine, although in Persia, you know, they don't have such a strict attitude about wine as they do in Saudi Arabia. For one thing, wine doesn't grow well in desert like Saudi Arabia. And uh, Iran is a perfect country for vineyards. So if there's any way in which an alternative interpretation of what looks like a total ban can be worked out, people have will, will try and have tried to work it out. So in other words, there are pubs throughout Persia in the Middle Ages, and there are pub poets, very religious as they consider themselves. And in fact, most of them are mystical too, adherents of the Sufi group. You may have heard of Sufis. Uh, they are uh, uh, very uh, individual in their thought. So here we are, the Sufi mystic. And he writes his poems of wine and tavern room. Oh, yes, I was going to tell about tavern romance. That's also not without controversy, because the, who, who goes to the tavern? It's the men that go to the tavern. And right away, we focus on this with what is surely the most famous two-part verse ever written by Hafiz. I, if the youth from Shiraz took my heart in his hand, for his beauty mark would bestow Samarkand and Bukhara. In other words, if my boyfriend would just give me, a, let's, let's say, let's tr trade presents, okay? He'll give me that beauty mole 
birthmark from on, that's on his face, and uh, I'll give him the two richest uh, provinces of Tamerlane's empire, uh, Bukhara and Samarkand. How does that sound? Tamerlane heard this poem and he said, it doesn't sound good to me. And uh, that uh, that's one of the more famous controversies in the history of uh, medieval Persian poetry. Let me read then. Let's finish. I only read you the first verse. Let's read the, the whole poem, not, not a long one. It's poem eight in this collection. I, if the youth from Shiraz took my heart in his hand for his beauty, Mark would bestow Samarkand and Bukhara. Taverner, hand me the wine, for in heaven you'd vainly be seeking Roknabad's flowery bank or Mosella. Woe for the rogues with enticing black eyes and with gestures endearing, rob all restraint from the heart as the Turks do. Love, when ungratified, doesn't require all the beauty my friend has. Faces alluring will need no adornment. Stay with the poet, the goblet, and seek not the things that are hidden. No one has found them, and no one will find them. Joseph's in ravishing beauty explains the enchantment of loving. Love rent asunder the veil of Zulaika. Heed my advice. Be aware that a youth of a high, noble breeding treasures the reverend words of an elder. Ill have you spoken? Forgiven. Tis fitting the ill had been spoken. Bitter goes well with your lips and their sweetness. Hafiz, you've lined up your melody gems, they're the beads on a necklace, pleiad-like, worth a bestrewal in heaven. That's a remarkable poem. Uh, it's one of the very strangest things, uh, for, for, because I'd never seen it before reading Hafiz, is the way he concludes it. He concludes many of his poems this way. Most of them are about disappointment in love, because all the would-be boyfriends he, whose attention he is trying to get do not pay any. So, generally speaking, he fails in his uh, attempted love adventures. And then what can you do? Well, you can always end off your poem with a pat on your own back if there's nobody else around to do it. Hmm. So now I'll continue. This is my reply. It's a, a contextual commentary. Thrilling the distich. Distich is a two-line or a couplet that opened a lyric where love spoke to power. Timur the Great did not find it amusing. Legend proclaims that he summoned the singer to court with a query. What may it mean, your colossal presumption? Dare you belittle the splendor of realms, your omnipotent ruler, conquered in lightning-like triumph of battle? You, Samarkand and Bukhara, would grant, and without hesitation, both for a beauty mark. Better explain it. Hafiz replied in the version von Hummer presented and relished. Sorry, my writing was badly reported. Here's what an accurate transcript will show you I plainly had written. Gladly I'd give from Bukhara to pastries. Aptly he sprang from the trap with agility all have applauded. Many the ways they retell of the triumph. Don't be surprised the temerities loved for a fool to Tsar Ivan as to King Lear in a madness poetic spoke with a boldness incomparable to a monarch besotted touched by the god they were gifted permitted isn't that a nice little story 
Tell the emperor exactly what you think of his empire. Uh, Goethe liked that because one of the reasons he Goethe is Germany's most famous poet. He wrote Faust. What a lot of people don't realize is that he also wrote a book copying Hafiz called West East Divan, West East Collection, where he masquerades as a, guess what, medieval Persian pub poet. And he writes love songs and his real life lady love answered them in the book. It's really fascinating. It happens that the lady friend was married and he decided he'd not try to mess up the marriage. So they decided together that they would uh, have a perfectly ideal and uh, non-physical relationship by way of a, a love poem book. So uh, Goethe wrote that up. But one reason he loved Hafiz so much, he said he called Hafiz his twin brother. Here's Goethe raised in, in, uh, in Lutheran uh, Germany, and he calls this uh, Islamic poet not just his brother, but his twin brother. I think it's because Hafiz gave him relief by writing about love and wine and defiance of the empire of Tamerlane. It gave him a, a, a Goethe feeling that he could get away too from current politics and stop thinking about the Napoleonic Wars, which were driving everybody insane. Now that is one of the most famous and celebrated episodes in Persian uh, literary history. And uh, 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 Josef von Hammer, the translator, wrote it up in such a way and with such feeling and love for Hafiz as the defier of empire, speaking truth to power, that he inspired Goethe's West East Divan with its songs that were set by Schubert and Schumann and any other composer uh, you may wish to name. So. Uh, um, uh, I think what happened what is that uh, uh, Hummer's essay on, uh, on Hafiz's defiance of Tamerlane is what empowered Goethe to start on that book. And I wrote a poem in praise of uh, Hummer for writing that. Honored by princes, loved by friends, resting in bloomy bowered garden, to Hafiz's learning pleasure lends, dewed flower mercy, Allah's pardon. Dynasties moved to battle by mutual turbid hatred rose, laid waste in towering flames would lie, all Asia from the striving foes. The empires in their turn were doomed to fall, and by the selfsame law, when at the last grave Timur loomed, the gazing nations quaked in awe. The sovereign welcomed Hafiz now, with grace, though in a lyric he wrote as a man who would not bow, despite how great a king might be. Bukhara, Samarkand, he claimed, the main adornments of the realm, or other prize that might be named, were he to hold the empire's helm, he would exchange right gladly too, for but one thing, the beauty mark that his beloved left, let him view. A simple word, let rulers hark. The more the rumbling thunders crashed, colliding kingdoms rife with rage, in writhing brilliance lightnings flashed, the sweet serene Iranian sage, the more appeared both calm and wise, half mystic, smiling in the night. He sang of the unsleeping sighs of nightingale for rose delight. Then let the horror of the storm that would convulse the Orient roar on. Affinities that form a stiller wisdom had been lent to him who caroled love and wine. Abounding chaos would but free one dowered by this gift divine of inward lighted liberty. 
For long had he waited, had he waited till the time long envied peace at length might come, we'd never hail that halidom we feel in every healing rhyme. Now therefore let us learn and long the cher uh, the lesson cherish that we've heard, who sings of wine and love a song can make, which like the holy word, beyond the bound of mortal bane may last on lips to hover. Ah, when lofty names of Tamerlane and Genghis Khan and Nadir Shah will only as a burning scar be known in mankind's memory, a warning and a mark to mar, so rather hark to Hafiz, he made bold by morning evening star, embroidered clear and lyric hymn to love and wine, twinned lights that are the eyes of choiring seraphim. Well, you can really see, can't you, what fun these interviews can be. Uh, I was going to read more uh, more Hafiz. I don't know if I need to do that. Basically, he makes maybe maybe just a short one, very short. Okay, here we go. My eyes like tents are ready to welcome and to shelter you. Descend, come in, be gracious, and let my dwelling be your home. That beauty mark and beard down have robbed the hearts of even the wise in wonder-working manner they serve instead of net and bait in rose-endowed enjoyment delight yourself o nightingale for with a lover's morning alone you'll find the meadow wide let be to lips entrusted the healing of my wounding heart the rubies with their virtues are kept within your treasury. I'll never have the standing to let me be quite near to you. And yet you see my spirit come nearer as your threshold dust. I do not spend on any beloved thing my gold of soul, your seal and signet only, impressed that I may cherish them. My kind chivalric rider, the rarest art have you acquired to mount the horse of heaven and tame it willing with your whip. And how shall I, enamored, your thousand arts be countering the clever conjuration whereby you lead astray the skies? The very spheres are dancing within the round of harmony to which the tunes provided by Hafi's finest book of hymns. I think we don't need to emphasize the main, that final fat on the back, do we? That's getting to, to be a, a well-known trademark. And now I think we have uh, a good occasion to proceed to number, number three. Poet, my twin brother, whom I call, well, together, together we call ourselves Shakespeare. First of all, I'd like to give you just a little prose paragraph from, from a critic uh, that I was reading. He points out that an editor of Shakespeare named John Benson in 1640, 1640, that's less than a half a century after Shakespeare died, altered the poetic addressee's gender so that most of the poems that are spoken to a man seem in the Benson edition addressed to a woman. For a hundred and fifty years, this was the edition of the sonnets that the world knew, not corrected until 1780 by Edmund Malone. I enjoy being able to help dispel the clouds of misperception. It has been observed that the truth shall make you free. Interesting, isn't it? So back in, in 1640 already, the lid was clamped down by the censors. 
I'll do Sonnet 1 simply because it, it introduces so nicely the, the major themes of the book. From fairest creatures we desire increase, that thereby beauty's rose might never die. But as the riper should by time decease, his tender air might bear his memory. But thou, contracted to thine own bright eyes, feedst thy light's flame with self-substantial fuel, making a famine where abundance lies. Thyself thy foe, to thy sweet self too cruel. Thou that art now the world's fresh ornament and only herald to the gaudy spring, within thine own bud bearest thy content and tender churl mixed waste in niggarding being a miser. Pity the world, or else this glutton be, to eat the world's due by the grave and thee. In other words, it's a, uh, gee, thou art the world's fresh ornament and only herald to the gaudy spring. That's an interesting way to talk to your boyfriend. And he also says, he also calls him beauty's rose, traditionally a feminine flower. I reply to this, I say, the beauty rose, a man, remarkable. Another man is telling him that he had best beget, lest love might die with full assent unrealized. A penury, though cloaked in seeming riches, if, if self-prized, you nothing sowed, lived unproductively, regardless of the offspring dreamed, despised as barren death's own narrow home you'd be. Who doesn't wish to give? but shyly keeps the miser what is in him to bestow in unawakened enervation sleeps that will not let the eye or others grow for love must lend remain neglectful of the giving wisdom the giving wisdom and you'll never love so at uh, the uh, The point is made. It's best to have kids. Later on, he'll say 10 is the better, best number because it's a lot. If you want to pass on, pass, uh, what is it called? Pay forward the beauty you've been given. Unthrifty loveliness, why dost thou spend upon thyself thy beauty's legacy? Nature's bequest gives nothing, gives nothing, but doth lend. And being frank, she lends to those are free. Then, beauteous niggard, why dost thou abuse the bounteous largesse given thee to give? Profitless usurer, why dost thou use so great a sum of sums yet canst not live? For having traffic with thyself alone, thou of thyself, thy sweet self, dost deceive. Then how, when nature calls thee to be gone, what acceptable audit canst thou leave? Thy unused beauty must be tombed with thee, which used lives the executor to be. See, every time you have a child, there's another you. That's a whole lot of immortality. And if you have no children, that's a whole lot of death. My reply says, executor and executioner. Bequest or death, one cannot help but choose. You've heard that rule before, but we prefer to rail relentless, let you not refuse. Your venture capital will get no wage if not invested. Capital offense. You notice how Shakespeare like I am? I make puns wholesale. I learned how to do that from the master. So mortgage assets that by mortal gauge earned profit early may reward good sense. 
A self-regarding passion merely means the bills that bear your image cannot pay. Who proudly in the dreaming mirror preens will find his mintage melted quite away. Do you get the meaning there? I am commenting on the line in, the, in Shakespeare's poem. Uh, For having traffic with thyself alone, thou of thyself, thy sweet self dost deceive. He's been trafficking with himself, and I take that to mean masturbating. And that's why I say, if you look in the mirror after that, you'll find your mintage, what could have been a coin uh, to, uh, to, to, that you could spend. That is to say, a worthwhile and a life-giving and a profitable thing, a child is going to be just melted quite away. And then I conclude with a Shakespeare-type pun, be shamed who thus can liquidate accounts. As income dwindles, debt unpaid yet mounts. Hmm. Well, we go on like that for 39 poems. I asked myself, by the way, in one poem, but let's see, it's it's the reply to, to, uh, to Sonnet 9. I ask, mere singleness a crime? I can't grasp why, unless the love of woman would allow the poet's comrade to identify with him more fully than he can right now. Reflected in the graceful lady eyes, the lover loves, the friend identifies. You see what, I, what I'm saying? I'm saying that if Shakespeare, the Shakespeare narrator imagines his boyfriend as having sex with a woman, he can identify with a boyfriend and have sex with that woman and, if, so to speak, be a co-begetter of the child. That's not too complicated for Shakespeare. And now I'd like to do the centerpiece, and we've timed it about right. Uh, this, the centerpiece is the Sonnet 20. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted, hast thou, the master mistress of my passion. We could stop right that there. It's worth thinking over, isn't it? He's talking to his boyfriend and he says, you have a woman's face and you are the master mistress, hyphened, of my passion. A woman's gentle heart you have, but not acquainted with shifting change as is false women's fashion. Bit of misogyny in there. An eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. A man in hue, all hues in his controlling which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature as she wrought thee fell a doting, and by addition may of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose nothing. Did you get that? It's rather tight packed. For a woman wert thou first created, Nature uh, intended that you should be a woman. You look just like one. Till nature, as she wrought thee, as she was working on you, fell a doting, whatever that means, something like, is it absent-minded or, or uh, dementia or uh, sleepy? Well, something like that. It could, it, it could mean a number of things. But anyway, she somehow, her, her thinking uh, went astray. Let's just say my favorite word, absent-minded. And by addition, me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. In other words, nature made a big super mistake when you're making a woman. She gave him a male 
organ. But since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, is that make it a little clearer? Mine be thy love and thy love's use, their treasure. Some people have tried to suggest that this is Shakespeare's platonic love for his boyfriend. But on the other hand, he says uh, so often that the, that the man is absolutely a woman, in, except for one uh, certain, uh, uh, shall we say, absent-minded detail that really didn't have to be there, uh, would be easily mistakable for a woman and a quite perfect one at that. I would say this is a pretty strong indication of a bisexual orientation. And now uh, let's turn, I think it, would be, it might be nice to do at the end, with, uh, with uh, the last part of my interview reply to Eclogue 2. And this is part four of that reply, and it is called Gender Crossing. Everyone reading Song 20, I'm sure, will be struck by the thinking. William explains that his comrade was made to be born as a woman. Nature fell doting and added a part seldom seen on a female. Will isn't bothered by that. Master, mistress, the friend is remaining. Virgil and Shakespeare are drawn to a world where the borders are fluid. Flute playing, blossom and bloom connoisseurship are fit for both genders. Failed with Alexis? Keep trying. Menalcus or fair Amaryllis? Either the man or the lady might comfort you. Sadness relieving. Sonnets of William? More homoerotic than not, yet inclusive, rightly are deemed. To the female he sings with a passion convincing. Praise the bisexual bard, for the heart moved the stars in their courses. Often I'm thinking androgynous modes of inclusion might favor every imaginer writing for humankind, fluidly gendered. Goethe in tones of Prometheus wrote, and of Ganymede also. Internet fiery Promethean eye, yet a Danae likewise. Deep receptivity heaven requires to enable creation. Thank you so much for coming. Mm -hmm.